Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, but also brings you the insight and analysis on all the issues in world football that you want to talk about with us. I'm very, very pleased to say that on this particular edition, which is Friday, of course, I'm joined by um, Dr. Duncan Castles, our transferred guru. But even more so, we are speaking with England's top, top football journalist, football correspondent of the Sunday Times, Jonathan Norcroft. Welcome, Johnny. Hi, Ian. Hi, Duncan. And thanks for the uh, introduction. <laughs> ah. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, as always, we want to start with some breaking news. Um, and, of course, that's what you rely on us for. Duncan, Neymar is a bit of a talking point. You've got some updates for us on um, his future at PSG. Yes, we told you some time ago in the podcast that Neymar um, was very hopeful getting a move back to Spain this summer. And then at the end of last month, we, uh, we broke the story that the Qatar um, owners of Paris Saint-Germain were actually ready to do a deal this summer if the price was right for them because of the problems Neymar had caused internally at the club. Uh, the latest I have from the Barcelona end is that Neymar has agreed with Barcelona that he would take a pay cut to come back to Camp Nou and play alongside uh, Luis Suarez, who this week was asked um, about whether he would like to see Neymar back at the club and said, why wouldn't, why wouldn't anyone um, not enjoy playing with a player like him? Uh, and more importantly, um, Lionel Messi. And the reason that uh, Neymar has been asked to take a pay cut is one, because of the, the finances of Barcelona, um, but more importantly, to bring his wage below that of Messi's and, uh, and not cause any problems with internal status within the club. Um, another element that has, has taken place between Barcelona and um, the player or his representatives is a discussion about how they make this transfer happen. And what Barcelona have asked Neymar to do is to go public with his desire to leave Paris Saint-Germain I think primarily um, to make it clear to the world that it is something he wants to do, which will make it easier for Qatar um, to justify selling the player. Um, and this is you know, a, a fairly standard bit of transfer strategy, um, particularly in high-profile deals like this. Uh, and I, I think in this case, it's not intended to put pressure on um, the owner club because uh, both Barcelona and Neymar believe that Paris Saint-Germain are happy to do a deal. It's simply to facilitate that deal down the line. Again, this doesn't mean it's going to happen. Um, there's still lots of hurdles. Uh, they have to come to an agreement on price with Paris Saint-Germain. Paris Saint-Germain are not going to give the player away. Uh, they want to be able to present it to the world as an economically intelligent deal. So I think what you're going to be looking at is cash plus um, a player or maybe two players. Uh, Barcelona have already offered as Mandambele and Philippe Coutinho as possibilities to Paris Saint-Germain. PSG particularly interested in Coutinho. Um, so plenty of stages to go, but moving forward. In your opinion, is this trouble or treacle? I think with Neymar, I think with Neymar, you've got to look at the what's going to be a knock-on effect for the entire market. I mean, you know, it, it, it will be 
one of those keynote transfers, if, if it happens, that will send repercussions across the entire continent. If it doesn't happen, there'll be a lot of people waiting for, for, for those moves to happen. So many things depend on the, the things at the top of the market. So, you know, when I look at that situation, I suppose I see something that's at the top of the tree and we've got a pause at the moment with a lot of big clubs waiting to, to make their moves on various, um, on various targets. But I think what happens with Barcelona in particular and Real Madrid, and especially that Neymar situation, will, will, will be fundamental to, to a lot of what happens in the market this summer. Duncan, we've talked a lot about Neymar, obviously, on the transfer with the podcast over the last few months. Um, you were the first person to um, break the story that he was for sale. Um, in terms of where it goes from here, would you suspect that this is going to be long running or do you think it will be something which is resolved quite quickly? No, I think it'll be long running. I think, uh, as I say, it's the, the, the amount of money involved, the complexity of the process. Um, I think also the timing uh, could be important in terms of uh, having things done after um, 30th June, um, which is an important part of the budgeting for Barcelona. I believe they want to sell players if possible, um, this month uh, to square off their budget for last season uh, and to allow them uh, more leeway to do things in next season. Um, from the briefing I, I've had today on, on it, it, there's certainly a long way to go. And uh, I think a lot with this move in particular, I think the PR perspective is very important. Um, because he's such a high-profile player, because Paris Saint-Germain are allowing the world record transfer to leave. Um, they have to show to the world that, that this is something um, the player has had chosen, had chosen to do, but they um, have, a, have a good solution for and, and a way to, to make their club stronger by allowing it to happen, which means, of course, bringing um, players will be more effective uh, for their sporting project uh, into the equation. Uh, they've changed their, their, their sports director. Um, Antero Enrique has, uh, has resigned his position at Paris Saint-Germain um, and Leonardo has come back to the club, um, which will be an interesting part of the dynamic. Um, I think that I understand that was an amicable move. and I think you will see Antero Enrique um, taking up a, a role in Qatar in the future, perhaps something associated with the organisation of the World Cup. Um, but uh, from the Paris Saint-Germain end, this, I think it's the first time that they're, they're properly looking at their dressing room and properly looking at the repercussions of spending so much money on um, such a high-profile player and, and the difficulty it's caused internally with, with teammates, um, with sporting directors, with the managers, um, and the, the, the fashion in which he's behaved actually obstructing the, the, the goal of the club, which is to win the Champions League. And they're now, I think they've realised, they've learned from this. And it's going to be interesting to see if they can resolve all the problems, which, which extend beyond Neymar for sure. He's been a bad influence in that dressing room in this window. Um, and get themselves in a position where they're getting better bang for their very considerable buck. So the most unexpected taxi driver in the history of um, Paris will be Kylian Mbappe, who will be <laughs> waiting outside of the uh, PSG mm -hmm. training ground, waiting for Neymar 
uh, to come out and drive him to Charles de Gaulle, where he can fly off to Barcelona. So, apart from Barcelona, let's move to Madrid. And Johnny Rodri, um, we understand uh, on the Transform the Podcast, um, his buyout clause has been met by Manchester City. Mm. He's obviously a long-term target, someone who we've spoken about a lot on the podcast. Um, thing is, it's not quite done yet. And partly the um, complications are because Bayern Munich have entered into the race to sign him, although um, our information is that a deal has been agreed personally with uh, Rodri and his representatives. However, uh, Bayern are probably looking to try and hijack that. Um, Question to you is, um, is this the right guy who's the long-term replacement for Fernandinho? And is the right person to buy for City in this particular window? Yeah, I mean, the thing with City is what impresses you is how, a bit like Liverpool, how much uh, forward planning goes into these transfer windows. And Rodri's been identified a long way out. I mean, my, you know, my my information, I'm sure, is similar to to you guys that that before this window they had they felt they had Rodri and 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 a right back probably Cancelo tied down from a long way out and and that. There's an optimism that they could, could could make these transfers early and, and allow Pep maximum time to to, to work on um, shape and, and all the stuff he needs to work on for for next season. And, and Rodri, of all of the targets, seems to be the one that that, that Guardiola wants more than anybody else. Um, you know, a, a, a guy that would be absolutely fundamental to to the way he wants to to play. Uh, a, a guy in a position where. Um, you know, yes, Fernandinho's done done very, very well for Manchester City, but to my mind, started to fade a little bit towards the end of last season. Um, you know, although it was said that he was irreplaceable, actually, Gundogan came in and replaced him, maybe upgraded on him um, in the last few weeks of the season. And Gundogan isn't quite Pep's ideal player in that position, so someone like Rodri is. Uh, essential to, to to what he wants to do. I'm not surprised about Bayern. Um, you know, Xabi Alonso was was held in such a guard at that club, and I guess Rodri would be seen as uh, an attempt at signing a new Alonso. But Bayern look like they are, are kind of chancing their arm a little bit and trying to get in position for if something goes goes wrong with with Rodri to City. And I think Rodri does want it um, in terms of City being his preference. It's just that, the, you know, with, with City do have to try and match what he wants financially and, and Bayern will be in place um, to try and take advantage if, if that can't be agreed on. But I'd be very, very surprised if City don't get this one because, as I say, it's so fundamental to, to their plans for this summer. Duncan? Yeah, it's a, it's a scenario where I think the, the transfer fee, albeit 70 million euros, a lot of money, um, it's regarded generally in the market as being... Um, a bargain for the quality of player in the in the pricing for top level midfielders. Uh, he's young, so you've got potentially ten years out of him as a as a player if you manage to secure him and it goes as you like. Um, and I think what you have here is a scenario where City, had, as Jonathan says, had put all the work in to set the deal up. Um, I'd been told he wanted to come. They knew they could get him because it was a release clause. Uh, Atletico, I think, have had a go at retaining the player. 
um, offering to increase the wages and he's decided not to accept that. And then Byron have been opportunistic, um, which obviously allows Rodri's representatives to say, well, um, we'd still want to come. Um, but look, this club in Germany is offering us more money than uh, you're offering us. So um, we need a little extra on the deal. So Rodri's future still to be decided in terms of um, whether it could be Manchester City or Bayern Munich. Um, Duncan, what can you update us with regards to João Felix, another one of Portugal's hottest um, properties in terms of transfers this summer? Yes, uh, as we told you at the start of the week, Felix has been in Madrid um, at Atletico uh, to have conversations with the manager and the club and sort out his deal there. I'm told that is all in place, um, player to club. Um, in fact, I'm told he has already done um, the, the kind of uh, announcement videos uh, for his transfer um, and interviews with the club website and has left and, and gone on holiday. So that's all pre- prepared for the announcement. Um, the expectation is that that will go through from Benfica's end. They will get their 120 million euros. I think it, uh, what they're working on is the scheduling of, of the payments, um, raising the cash from the, uh, the Atletico end to to, to pay Benfica what they need. So that should, um, well, there was an expect, expectation that would actually be announced this week. Um, it hasn't happened yet. Maybe we'll get it before the end of this week. But according to um, two sides of that deal, uh, that is where he will be moving. And Manchester City have missed their opportunity to take the player, which is a, an interesting decision on their part. Um, and I think... I think, as we said on Monday, reflects the fact that they do not know what Leroy Zani is going to do in terms of whether they can convince him to sign a new contract or whether he will take uh, the deal on offer at Bayern Munich um, and uh, whether they can, Bayern Munich will negotiate successfully a price with um, City to take him. I think from Bayern's perspective, that is a bad sign, though, that, um, that Felix is, has chosen to go to Atletico because I think that will make it harder for them to compete in terms of contract value um, with Manchester City over uh, Leroy Zani. Johnny, is this a big loss for Manchester City? Because it was widely received and expected that this was the guy who would be the long-term successor of David Silva. Now, players like David Silva don't come along to, um, you know, very often. And so therefore, uh, to replace him with such a young player who's got so much promise... Um, even at that price, which is, I think, quite expensive for a 19-year-old. Um, is there a, an option out, out there that we are not seeing or something that City are just basically backing away from? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I think the new David Silva is actually going to be Phil Foden and um, his evolution has been as a more uh, attacking, even, um, you know, sort of, creative um, number 10 option than, than maybe the player we, we, we first thought. So I think he he might be, a, I guess, a young David Silva replacement rather than latter-day David Silva. But none, nonetheless, I think he's now developing so quickly that City have got to make room to, to play him significantly next season or, or else they'll start to, to risk, even though he's a City fan, they'll start to risk an unsettled player. But I do think Felix is a bit of a... Well, we're not going to know if it's a missed opportunity until we really see how he develops. But it does look like there was a chance there for City to really nail something down that that, that could be very special. And it's just the whole British chauvinism about Felix is funny because he was so 
hyped and the subject of such intrigue before the Nations League. Um, and then he plays, you know, one sort of bad game against Switzerland. First game he's played with Cristiano Ronaldo in his career and, you know, maybe understandably uh, overawed. Um, plays one bad game, suddenly he's a suddenly he's a dud. And then, you know, the prospect of him going to Atletico Madrid is, is taken as a sort of fall from grace and, and, and why would he want to do that? And I, I just think it's a pretty shrewd career move for him if he if if he looks at um which I'm sure he has done of what Atletico have done for other players in this position, the development of of other forward players there. Um it's been a brilliant stepping stone for them. So I I think it'd be very good for his development and and perhaps a better option in the short term than City where he he would have struggled to play. I think he 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 would have struggled in the same way that Gabriel Jesus has struggled to to be first choice and and even Sane because um, there is an element of, of short-termism at the moment from from Guardiola, which is is to try and, um, and cram in as much winning as he can in the next year or two of his, his contract um, because he's not quite sure what, what's going to come next for him as a manager, but he certainly wants to win that Champions League for City. And um, he has been going with more senior players. So for Felix, it would have been a, a development move to, to, to City, um, whereas I think he'll play more and... and Actually, in terms of development, it might even be better for him at Atletico. But Duncan, Sir Alex Ferguson always said that when he won a Premier League title, the first thing he thought about after the 12 hours of celebration was, let's go to war. We're going to do it again next season. Now, Pep Guardiola has now replicated um, Ferguson in terms of winning back-to-back titles. Um, so how does he go to war if he's not recruiting the players that he needs to upgrade his squad in order to make them stronger against the rivals next season I think he will upgrade his squad Um, I doubt he will be satisfied with the upgrades he he gets Um, I think he's a very hard man to please and he's the kind of uh, manager who always asks for more I suspect um, that uh, he, if it had been his choice, um, Kyle Walker would not have got a new contract. I think that's a, a club-driven um, decision. And I think if uh, if it had been Guardiola's, had, had full control over that situation, he would have sought to um, replace both Kyle Walker and, uh, and Danilo um, and bring Jean Cancelo and another right back in. But there's a compromise there. Um I think I refer you back to a press conference he gave last season, um, where he was he was very critical um, of Manchester City's recruitment in the sense uh, of saying that they needed to act quicker about finding the upcoming players and securing them before other clubs did. And I think the reference there was to Kylian Mbappe, who they missed out on. Um, after Guardiola did a lot of work meeting the player in person to try and get him out of Monaco, I, I believe Guardiola saw Felix in the in the same light. And, and while I agree with Johnny that uh, he wouldn't necessarily have got, a, you know, he wouldn't, have, he certainly wouldn't have been a guaranteed starter coming into the City lineup. Um, I think he would have been used by Guardiola, and I think he, 
I think that there's an argument, and I know that this argument came from people close to Felix, that as a development club, City might be a better place to be because there wouldn't be the expectation to perform from the start. And he could uh, he could bed in in the way that Bernardo Silva did in his uh, first season at Manchester City, whereas at Atletico, he's going to be expected to be the new Antoine Griezmann. And I, and I think Diego Simeone had to do a lot of work with Felix to convince him that Atletico is the right place to come and that he really believed in him as a player. Um, so I think there's, there's, um, there is tension there. Um, but I think Johnny's absolutely right to identify the fact that Guardiola uh, does not have patience and um, he knows he'll be judged on how he does in the Champions League. Ultimately, at, at Manchester City, he can talk as much as he likes about the importance of winning the Premier League and prioritising that and winning it twice in a row being a mark of true champions and I think he's right about those elements but he was hired to win the Champions League by Abu Dhabi um, his performances in the knockout stages have been awful so far uh, only won two uh, knockout round games in, in three attempts uh, at the competition um, and he knows that uh, if, he, if he leaves another club after Bayern Munich without having won the Champions League with the resources that have been given to him, it will be a black mark on his, his CV, regardless of um, how great his team can be in the Premier League, and they have been exceptionally good. Well, like a well-worn flip-flop uh, by the great Gandhi, um, we're going to tread across Manchester to Manchester United, and um, we have information that the um, bid for one, uh, Aaron Van Bissaka, has been accepted by Crystal Palace. It will be £55 million. Um, there'll be no add-ons. And that Van Bissaka himself is keen to make the move to Old Trafford. Um, Johnny, you're a studious uh, man with regards to the policy at um, Old Trafford regarding uh, ins and outs. Um is this part of a considered um, new and, let's say, um, very um, reflective <laughs> part of the way that they are going to do deals in terms of young English players, given Dan mm -hmm. James's move as well? Or is this just simply um, recruiting the best possible right back on the market at this moment in time? Mm. <laughs> It's a lurch. I mean, it's another lurch in policy for for Manchester United. And you know, to be fair, when they when they go for it, they do go for it. But um, it's been, you know, we've gone we've come through the let's say the Galactico years where um, the profile, um, the magnitude of the the, the signing has been um, important to the club in in terms of not just the player on the pitch, but the, the, the PR splash and the, I guess, the European profile. And we've gone from that to a lurch towards young British talent. Now, you know, whether either policy is, fits best for Manchester United is, is another question, which I'm sure we'll get into. But the thing that's first thing that strikes you is, is the, the, the sheer difference between what they're trying to do this summer and what they uh, were doing, um, in the transfer window that they bought Alexis Sanchez and what they were trying to do um, under Van Gaal and um, what, what Edward want, Ed Woodward wanted to do um, under Josie Mourinho. So 
Um, that's the first thing that strikes me. And and having made the lurch there, wow, they are going for it because 55 million for um, a player that hasn't played for England yet, hasn't even been in a senior squad, um, is uh, quite a punt. Duncan, would you agree it's a punt? Look, we broke the story in Daily Record yesterday of this, this deal. Um, I was briefed that uh, basically Crystal Palace had uh, called... Ed Woodward's hand on it and said we're not going to settle for less than, than 55 million for this player which is a world record fee for a specialist fullback. Um, it's exceeding the money that uh, that uh, Manchester City paid for first Kyle Walker and then uh, Benjamin Mendy a couple of years ago. Um, there is Lucas Hernandez who's gone from Atletico to Bayern who plays fullback for France but he's a centre-back um, for his club and I expect Bayern to use him as a centre-back he cost 18 million euros so that's more expensive but if you're looking at a pure fullback, but most expensive deal ever for a player as Johnny says who's 21 has one full season in the Premier League only made his debut um, in February 2018 um, so they're paying absolute top dollar for the player um, and there's a gamble involved in the sense that he has to improve on on how he is as a player. He's got he's certainly got plenty of development um, required in him. Uh, I think there are doubts about how he is as an attacking fullback. I think looking at the numbers today, um, I think there's the opportunity for him to be a better attacking fullback. I think part of it's playing for Crystal Palace is limited as a ability to to operate in that way. His um, his crossing accuracy is pretty good. Doesn't have that many assists. If you put him head to head against Alexander Arnold, they don't they don't look great. But let's see what happens when you put him in a in a more attacking team. Although you can have a question mark about how good an attacking team he's going to be in at, at Manchester United. But there 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 is a gamble here and. Let's face it, Manchester United have been there before. Five years ago, they signed Luke Shaw, um, the most expensive teenage defender in history, most expensive uh, transfer fee for a fullback at the time. And five years on, he's made 66 Premier League starts in total. Um, so you have to say that investment didn't go well. And I think you also have to say that if it had been up to at least one of his managers, um, he wouldn't be at the club any longer. And I think there's also, there's a good argument that that might have been the right decision to take with him. But there's also a kind of bizarre thing in that they bought a young development fullback, a highly rated one last summer in Jogo Dalot. And he's kind of been cast to the side on the basis that um, he didn't make himself an automatic starter last season. He's younger than, than, um, Wan-Bissaka. Um, he definitely looks a better attacking fullback than Wan-Bissaka in terms of what he's done on the pitch uh, in his time at Porto and at Manchester United. His crossing the ball is exceptionally good. Um, he doesn't. He's definitely not the finished product from a defensive perspective. But it's difficult to have two very young fullbacks. In, in the same side and if you bought one of them for £55 million the expectation is going to be that he plays a lot um, I think defensively he's exceptionally good I've talked to people at Crystal Palace who, who've been there during uh, the period in which he broke into the team and they said that he basically was the only player in training who could cope 
with Wilfred Saha. Um, he had the, the ability to defend against him one-on-one and the physique. They say that the, the thing that's really noticeable about Juan Pesac is he kind of got a natural strength about him, um, which allows him to win one-on-one duels defensively. So so that component is there. Um, obviously, the question is, how does he respond to the pressure and the expectation of the transfer fee. I think you've seen Sky uh, taking his performance for the under-21s apart um, this week, and that's the kind of analysis that you don't get when you're playing for Crystal Palace. And and how he responds to that and how he responds to um, being a Manchester United player, um, being paid a lot more money, um, the attention that attracts from, from people um, around him will be interesting but again though the, the the briefing I have from people at Crystal Palace is he's actually a very down-to-earth guy very calm doesn't get phased um, focused on his game I know Roy Hodgson's talked uh, um, very um, positively about his professionalism um, so they feel that he has the, the right ingredients for that and I think his his path to Premier League fame is a positive one in the sense that he almost got thrown out left out of the, the Crystal Palace Academy as a teenager, as a young teenager. He um, had to really fight to get into that team. Frank de Boer um, didn't even want to have him training with the first team, I'm told, when he came in at the club. Um, he's given an interview where he talked about uh, pushing last season um, for a loan to a League Two club because he wanted to get some playing time and Roy Hodgson telling him, no, you can't do that because I don't think it'll be good for your development. So the point here is he's had to fight. He's not one of these academy players that Chelsea have a, a surfeit of who've been given uh, contracts that pay them millions of pounds a year um, from age 16. Um, so he's had to battle to get his place in football. And, and I think that kind of development path is a, is a better one um, to prepare yourself to be at a club at Manchester United. But you ask whether it's a punt, yeah, I think it is a punt. Um, although, done for the right reasons. I mean, I think that's a great overview, I think, of, of, of where Van Bissaka is, the pluses and the minuses. And, you know, I, before, look, before giving the negative view, there, there are positives about this. You know, yes, he's a player with great tenacity. He's got great athleticism he's got character to him there's no doubt about all of these things there's lots and lots of development potential there you know I hear the same things about his character I think he's a, he's a very you know solid good sort that of course is a question mark about how he's going to handle um, Old Trafford and I don't think you can ever really know how a player's going to do that until you put them in that situation that's what Gary Neville always said you've got to send them out to Old Trafford before you really know if they can handle it. But, you know, I think the sign's there that he, he will. So it's not a crazy signing. I, I, I can see the elements that um, that attract United to Wan-Bissaka and it fits in with a need that has been identified by Solskjaer to improve the athleticism of the team, to improve its kind of mental backbone, as it were, to make the United harder to play against. He's been talking ad infinitum about all of these things. And I do see how... Wan-Bissaka fits into that. My, my problem is how he fits together with um, what United have already got. And I, I think one of the biggest issues watching Manchester United over the last few years has been their inability to, to play football out from the back. Um, when you compare them to um, 
other leading teams, the, the, the teams that they're trying to compete with in the modern game, they do not have defenders that handle the ball well enough. They do not have defenders who are comfortable in possession. And, you know, that, I don't think they've got good defenders either. But I think an overlooked issue is how these guys are on the ball. You know, Smalling has been discarded from the England squad because he can't play the football Gareth Southgate once. You know, Baye, Lindelof, Jones, I don't think they're strengths are necessarily handling the ball. Luke Shaw, look, to me, looks a fairly ordinary player, given the hype that, 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 that surrounded him when he was 18, in terms of his, his, his abilities as, a, as an attacking fullback and someone that handles the ball. And you, you just contrast the, the complete game that, that, that you know, City are playing, that Liverpool play, that, that, that you know, to, a, to an extent Tottenham can play with the defenders. And United seem to be going in a different direction. And Juan Bissaka, for all of his qualities is not technically a great player at this stage in his career. He did play as a winger when he was coming through. He does have dunks right. I mean, he's got the attacking potential, but it's been a long way from being realised. You know, three assists compared to Alexander-Arnold's 16 assists last season probably tells you where the golf is. But, you know, just just technically, just, just when he's got the ball at his feet, when he tries to to interplay. I just don't think that the standard of football that is there for United to play um, the kind of modern play out from the back game that other teams are playing. Now, maybe this is part of a, a conscious decision that we are going to be uber counter-attacking. We're going to go in a different direction. We're going to go back to basics, get the ball forward quickly. Fine. You know, if, if that if that really is where United are going, okay, that's that that that, that that's that's what that's what we're going to see. I then say, well, why are you selling Romelu Lukaku? Because if you're going to play old-fashioned football, then surely you, you want your big target man. So it, it, it's just where does it all fit together, and where does this leave United in terms of playing the kind of football that you know, I as far as I can see, is required to to win at the top level these days. Johnny, it seems to me that. Um, everyone in the top six playing catch up to Liverpool <clears throat> with regards to their fullbacks, as you've mentioned very um, positively, Trent Alexander Arnold on the right, Andrew Robertson, who is undoubtedly <clears throat> the best left back in the Premier League. Um, they contribute hugely to Liverpool's um, challenge to the Premier League title last season and obviously to them winning the Champions League. Um, Juan Basaka seems to me to be someone who's got promise in terms of his potential, etc. But it seems like everyone else is playing catch-up with regards to how important valuable fullbacks are. Yeah, um, you're, you're right. Would you, would you agree with that? I would, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, fullbacks are becoming... Um, almost leading assists providers on, on the pitch with the advent of wingers that tuck inside and become more like, you know, wide strikers, then um, that role of getting down the outsides is taken up by the fullback. And Liverpool took that to um, its logical conclusion last year where the two most creative players on the pitch were the fullbacks. You know, City do something slightly different where the fullbacks have to be more like midfielders and, and play a very sort of tactically clever game and, 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 and always be aware of, of, of positioning to help stretch the opposition and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think Tottenham uh, play a sort of hybrid of, of, of City and, and, and Liverpool's football, but again, the, 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 they need their fullbacks to be 
um, playing well in, in, a, in a footballing sense, in an attacking sense for that game to work properly. Um, and, you know, here, here's United, um, as I say, looking to try and go a different way. The, I guess the good news is, and I, I don't want to come across as saying, you know, Wan-Bissaka's rubbish. I'm just saying he's a long way from where I think a modern fullback really needs to be. But the good news, I guess, is that, you know, something like crossing is a very practicable skill. It's something that Alexander Arnold, for example, um, when he converted to fullback at the age of sort of 17, 18, put an enormous effort into, into working on and improved upon really rapidly. So, you know, Van Bissaka's crossing is fine, as Duncan said. He, he can improve that by a significant amount. Um, but just going back to the under-21 game, it, that that own goal looked horrible to me from a technical point of view because it was, you know, a player who couldn't use his left foot um, in, in in a situation, you know, smacking the ball into his own net because he's trying to use his wrong foot, presumably because of a technical deficiency. And, and those are the things that worry me here. But, you know, hey, you could just say that Manchester United are a long way from these top clubs and maybe they're just being realistic in looking at um, buying someone who they think they can be developed to be that player in three or four years. He's just not going to be that player yet. Doug, is this false economy? Because let's face it, we've seen Kyle Walker go to Manchester City for £50 million. Um, one Bissaka we expect to join Manchester United for 55 And as Johnny said, he doesn't feel like he's the total package yet and the real deal. Um, when you're up against players like um, Andy Robertson and Alexander-Arnold who have come through the ranks at Liverpool and um, been incredibly effective but for you know a fraction of the price. So where does this stand in terms of the Premier League and, and how they use fullbacks? Look, I think it's more about where Manchester United are um, and, and that was the briefing I had is that Crystal Palace knew that Manchester United were in a difficult place. I think it's, it's not a coincidence that um, the day the deal is agreed with Crystal Palace, that, that record fee is agreed, you've got Manchester United supporters running a campaign on Twitter uh, to get the phrase Glazers out, uh, trending worldwide. Because um, it's not a coincidence in that there is so much pressure on Ed Woodward um, from the fan base to get this transfer window correct. And signing Daniel James... Um, from Swansea City with no competition from top clubs did not go down well with the Manchester United support who've been waiting they know they have to reinforce at centre back they know they need at least two midfielders Uh, they know Paul Pogba is trying to get out they know David De Gea is not happy and they might need a goalkeeper there they know they've made a bid for a new goalkeeper they know Lukaku wants out so they're going to need a new striker everyone knows they need a right winger Um, there's a lot of work to be done there Uh, and and the fans know that and are extremely unhappy with how the club has been performing, how the chief executive has been performing, how the American owners have run them. But other clubs also know that. And they know that Manchester United um, have a large pool of cash um, and are under pressure to buy. So when Manchester United come calling for their, their players, the price goes up. As you uh, pointed out in our last podcast, talking about Daniel James and the, the price of championship club uh, were prepared to pay for him. And, uh, and the figure that I think it was double that Manchester United eventually ended up paying for a player who whose numbers, even in the championship, aren't 
exactly spectacularly good. So that one is definitely a gamble. You know, we can talk about Wan-Bissaka and have our question marks about it, but say there's a lot of raw material there. But Daniel James, that's a proper gamble. Johnny, one of the reasons we invite you on the podcast is not because your um, Scottish brogue is very seductive, but also because <laughs> you can solve problems for us. And um, you're very close to um, Liverpool, and uh, we respect that hugely. And one of the questions that we have, and we have lots of our listeners, is what the hell's going on with Liverpool, the transfer window? Why are they not being active? Why are they being proactive? Because we're talking about Champions League winners here and a team that finished just behind Manchester City. Can we expect action at Anfield? Yeah, um, I, I, I think this is a sign of Liverpool's evolution. They, they are, they've been building towards getting themselves into this position probably for six years now. Um, and I spoke to Michael Edwards, the sporting director, about this last year, where they feel they've gone through that phase of um, trying to, to sign... Um, in volume and trying to sign players to to develop to take the club forward on on the pitch um, to to a position where they're almost they're almost complete you know I think that was the the phrase I heard around Liverpool talking about transfers last year almost complete that doesn't mean complacent about anything but that means a feeling that they've got a high grade squad they've got high grade players in in most positions and, and more importantly players that the manager really identifies with them once and now they're in a position where they can just try and pick off they feel the top players that they need at the top end of the market so Van Dyke and Allison for world record fees um, I think is, is, is a trend that we'll see continuing and I expect to see Liverpool biding their time um, trying to sort out smaller deals um, you know outgoings like Simon Mignolet, for example, um, like where some of the younger players are going to go on loan, uh, tying up Divock Origi on a new contract, which I do expect to happen, and saving their energies for maybe signing um, a couple of very young players to develop and then trying to pick off those top players at the top end of the market uh, that are going to take them forward. And I, I think, you know, that that is a position all clubs would love to be in it's the exact opposite of the overheated situation United are in. And Liverpool will be working from lists that they've, they've compiled over the last three or four, five years even. Um, uh, but now they'll be working on the one or two, one, two or three choices and maybe not, you know, from choices one to ten, they can, they can afford to look at the cream now. Duncan, I suspect that you're representing the um, young players in the background that uh, we heard from Johnny there, um, which is sensational. And you can update us on their progress as well. Um, But why would you think that Liverpool have not been active so far in the transfer market? And where do you think they need to improve? And will they improve? I think I agree with with, with Johnny here that they don't need to do a huge amount. They obviously need a... Um, a backup left back to, to Andy Robertson um, I think they need a creative player in midfield as we've said before um, I think it would help them to have an, another top level forward of the similar type to Salah Amani and Nicola Pepe is the, is the clear candidate there um, just to put a marker down I think there's an expectation that Mo Salah might not be at Liverpool um, in a year's time 
And, uh, and from what I hear, um, Liverpool might not be entirely against that in the sense that if Salah has another sensational season and they're able to sell him to a Real Madrid or a Barcelona um, or a Paris Saint-Germain for 200 million euros plus, which would be obviously be the asking price for a player of his quality, then they would have a, a replacement. And, and the idea at the moment, I'm told, is Nicola Pepe. Um, either in place if they do him this summer and integrate him in, in, in the squad or if, if they can, if, if Pepe was still to be available in a year's time, then to, to do something like that. And if it's not Pepe, they'll have another player identified because as, as Johnny says, they're, they, they're very surgical in the market now. They have a d- defined class of players that they want. They are not financially handicapped at all because they've done deals um, to sell players like Coutinho to make big profits, which allows them to go on and put you know, rec- record fees for goalkeepers uh, and, uh, and centre-backs down to get the right players from the right clubs at the right stage of their career. So they're in a, in a good place. They have put a lot on their wages too. So I, I'm, I'm interested to see what their, their, their accounts look like for the 18-19 season because they... Um, their their salary uh, level went up 26% last year and, and is above the declared figure for Manchester City um, for last season. Uh, the reality figure I'm not so sure about, but the declared figure is higher than Manchester City's, which shows you um, how much they've invested in salaries. And that's only with half a year of Van Dijk. I think they've had eight player upgrades since then and some very significant players. So you're talking guys like Salah, Mane, Firmino, um, who will be on major salaries and, and then substantial deals for Andy Robertson and Alexander-Arnold. So they're, they're using money and they're putting money towards um, retaining their better players and keeping them happy and then uh, keeping a little bit uh, for when they need to upgrade in certain positions or turn over the squad. And I know Liverpool are saying that they're, they're not going to sell players again. There won't be another Coutinho. But I think... They might get to a situation and and the way they're organised where they would allow a player um, like Salah to go if it suited them and the money was right and they had a a proper replacement in mind. But I don't think that's going to happen this summer. Um, But perhaps next year you could see a Salah or Manny move on and then the, the, the next version come into the club. But interested to see what Johnny's view of that is, having having that relationship with Michael Edwards. Yeah, I think that's pretty shrewd. I think they they um it's a perfect summary of, of of where they might be with someone like like Salah. Um that there's no pressure, there's no desire at the moment to to sell, but they are in that nice position now when if someone wants to offer Philip Coutinho money, um, which probably wouldn't be, you know, in the next year for, for Salah, obviously, but might come somewhere down the line. Um they can they can present the, the the head coach with the option you know what do you want to do here um, and they can also take into account whether the player wants to go that was the position they obviously found themselves in with with Coutinho so let's say in a year's time Real Madrid did materialise with 150 to 200 million for Salah and the player wanted to go and Jurgen Klopp thought well that's a good deal in terms of being able to reinvest in the squad Um I think they'd be in, in position to do that and they would have they would have things lined up. Um and, and the way they have worked with transfers is, you know, the, the targets they get they've been working on for for at least 
a window, if not, if not, if not, at least a, a season rather, if not longer, a lot of them. Um, and Pepe very much fits into that. Um, so it, 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 if you look at the squad, they've got pretty much everyone tied down except James Milner until at least uh, 2022, some of them to 2024. Um, mm. It will cost, it will cost a lot of wages to do that, but they've just um, scooped about 96 million pounds by winning the Champions League. Um, they, they, you know, they had the record profits. Um, they're getting more and more money from, from, from gate receipts. So I think it's in a, uh, it's in a pretty good position, Liverpool at the moment. Um and I, I guess one other position that they might be looking to to strengthen this this summer would be another goalkeeper um, with with Mignolet going. But you know, I go back to the fact that I think most clubs would like to be in that position where really you're trying to almost do admin with the squad and and look at the very very big ones um, either for 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 now or or for for later. Yeah, there's only there's only two clubs of the top six are in that situation. Realistically, isn't there? That, that they've got a squad that, yeah. in the main, is exactly as they want it, and they need to do a little bit of organisational work and can plan, you know, multiple years down the line. And that's that's yeah. Liverpool, Manchester City. Manchester City have obviously got more. They've got more depth, but they've probably also got more problems to solve when the company has left when they they didn't expect him to leave they thought that would be their decision to make rather than Vincent Companies and uh, and obviously they've had this long term issue of, of the Fernandinho successor and they've got the the Sani issue to resolve which is one they would uh, would like not to have but because of the players personal character and the, and the relationship that's developed with Guardiola they have to um, they have to come to a solution there and it's it's telling that they're they're considering selling a player who, because in normal circumstances, there's no way Manchester City would allow a player with Sani's um, numbers and ability and pace uh, and, uh, and ability to make a difference in the attack um, over their other attacking players to even talk to a competitive club. It's because Sani is, is unhappy and Guardiola is uh, prepared to consider that transfer that, that, that the situation's in, in is in the position it's in at the moment. Yeah, and the, the, the other tweak to the dynamics is is as we've spoken about that City have a a coach who's who's going to be putting more pressure on his recruitment department because he's in more of a hurry because he's probably got carrying more anxiety at the moment because he wants to to, to try and win this Champions League um, and there's bigger expectation on him whereas um, I think Klopp's always been more hand in glove with with the recruitment department and, and probably just a different character but but less one um, to to make demands, I guess, than than, than Guardiola. Um, but is also in a situation where he he's he's very happy with the squad. Where he feels it's developing under him, and he's already you know got that big that first big thing off his back, which is winning the trophy. Of course, there's now the expectation to try and win the league. Um, but he. It, it would only be next year if there's a, if there's another failed campaign to win the league that I think Klopp would start to feel impatient about strengthening the squad at the moment. Um, his vibes are very very sort of calm and, and and positive about what he's got. So Johnny Liverpool don't need to do too much, we think, given they are Champions League winners and obviously um, unlucky to miss out on the Premier League title. 
What about Arsenal? Hmm. They seem to be a club who don't really have an identity anymore in terms of their transfer policy. They are a club who um, have everything going for them. And by that, I mean going forward for them. Because uh, in Aubameyang and Lacazette, they've got a great um, asset in terms of goals. But where are they going to go this summer in terms of signings? Because it just seems to me that they've been very quiet and Mm -hmm. we have no idea what their plans are. In fact, there's not even any rumours about them. No, I mean, it's perplexing in, in, in terms of the situation Arsenal are in, but I guess it's not perplexing in the sense that we have been warned about this from quite a long way out. I mean, since Raul Sanlehi took over the football operations, um, he has been talking about the need to, to adhere to that self-sustaining model that the, 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 the Cronkies um, have operated at Arsenal. And actually, Duncan mentioned the... Um, the Glazers out hashtag that was running. Well, there's been a Cronky out hashtag running as well over the last sort of couple of days um, because of this this policy, I guess, because you know, you're right in that they've got so much going for them going forward and yet so much work to do in other areas of the squad and still a, a manager, a new manager, relatively new manager, trying to come to grips with it all. But I would suggest that this would be the summer to abandon that policy and make the investment. This will be the summer to, um, I, 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 you know, like in any business, there's a point where you have to try and put money in um, to seek a return. And this is patently what Arsenal are crying out for. And, and yet um, it looks like Kroenke, in fact, in fact, I'd be amazed if anything does change, is adhering to um, self-sustaining, which means a budget of about 40 to 50 million. And because 40 to 50 million gets you very, very little, then it means Arsenal almost being linked with, with nobody of note. Um, I think the complexity on top of that is there's still a lot to sort out at the club um, in terms of the football structure. So the significant developments have been, you know, Darren Burgess leaving as... Um, head of conditioning and, and um, Freddie Lundberg swapping jobs with, with Steve Bold in, in terms of being promoted to an assistant manager. And, and you know, they're still trying to sort all of that out um, almost before going to what, what, what they need to do on the pitch, which is a lot, as you say. And um, it's at a time when they're, they're, they're crying out for big action, but um are sort of sailing along as ever. Um, there's a disconnect there. Duncan, I think, I think they've got a lot of problems. I think there's a, there's a lot of problems in their structure. Um, and they, you know, they had that great transition to do from Arsene Wenger and they set themselves up in a way, um, I think quite an organised way in terms of um, bringing Raul Senyehi in as a, uh, uh, as a head of uh, football negotiations and then Sven Mislintat in charge of recruitment um, Gazidis taking a, a greater control on matters and then even Gazidis gets an offer from Milan to become chief executive with a pay rise and uh, an equity stake in the club and decides he has to leave just a couple of months into the first season post Wenger uh, and that 
essentially um, provoked a, another restructure of the, of the club's internal departments, which had been quite radically changed to deal with the absence of Arsene Wenger, who'd been this kind of all-powerful figure in the sense that he had an involvement in every department and that had directed the club in all departments to a certain extent for so many years. So you're now, um, you've had Mislintat resign his position uh, you have a. You actually don't have a chief executive. You have a shared managing director, head of football, also Sanya. He's taken the the football side of the chief executive position, and you've got the chief, um, the f- former chief commercial officer Vinay Venkatesham promoted to a managing director role. Um, they're probably going to bring a technical director in uh, uh, to work on the recruitment side. Some of the. Uh, Arsene, Arsene Wenger's scouts have been promoted higher up the hierarchy. And, and all of these, so you've got all of these structural changes for a second summer running, which is not a great scenario to be in. Um, they missed Champions League football for three years running, which makes big, big dent on the revenues because they have an owner who, as, as Johnny says, is running it for profit and is not going to put his own uh, cash into the project to try and uh, kickstart things, and if you look at that squad, it's um, it's not in a, it's not in a great shape. They they've signed Henrik Mkhitaryan on on big wages. They signed Obama Yang on big wages, and I think that's why you get the suggestion that were he to receive an offer from China again, Arsenal might not look adversely to that even though he was the leading scorer in the Premier League which seems bizarre but he's 30 he's paid a lot of money um, and then the, the mistake of giving Mesut Ozil the money he wanted to to stay at the club another player who's on the, the wrong side of 30 um, and, and actually I don't think he was even in the top 11 in terms of Premier League starts last season so they have money allocated to players who are, two of whom are not performing particularly well for them they lost a, a key individual in Aaron Ramsey. If you look at the defence, um, it's almost as bad as Manchester United's in the sense that there's no um, outstanding player there. Uh, they've got a bad age structure in that defence. They need to get more quality in, but there's not a budget to do it. I know that they have a, a, a long-standing interest in Eric Bailly and uh, I've approached him to find out if he'd be interested in, in moving to Arsenal. Um but the question mark in that deal has been, would they have the money to, to give Manchester United back what they, they paid to sign him three seasons ago? And, and that essentially came down to whether they qualified for the Champions League or not. And when they didn't, it, it doesn't look like they're going to have um, the resources to get Baye out. And Baye himself has been told that Solskjaer doesn't want to sell him. So there's a lot of problems to solve in that squad. And a lot of problems to solve in, in the executive structure of the club. And it's it's not it's not a pretty place at the moment, I think. Jordan, there's been a lot of conversation, and I think rightfully so, um, regarding the, um, let's just say, uh, it's versus and one v the other regarding financial profit in the football club and sporting success. And we've assigned this to Manchester United over the last five years with regards to Ed Woodward's, um, uh, the way that he has controlled the club and everything else and the fact that they've not um, lived up to expectations in terms of trophies. Is Arsenal going the same way? Because, let's face it, they, they are a club who seem to be 
um, more focused on profit financially off the pitch than they are sporting success on it. Yeah, the, the, there's a parallel there. Um, there's the uh, obvious parallel with, with coming to the end of a cycle of a great manager and, and struggling for an identity at a time when um, those running the club aren't really into dreamy stuff like identity, but they're, they're, they're into the, the, the bottom line. And of course, United have got the advantage on Arsenal in that they are this you know, global money-making machine. Um, not as money-making as they should be, of course, because if they were more successful, they would actually be making more money. But that penny doesn't, or that cent doesn't seem to have dropped with the Glazers. But anyway, but they're still a money-making machine. Arsenal are in less sort of certain position, I would say, um, commercially. And, and, you know, Arsenal fans would tell you how behind on commercial deals that, that the club has been over over the last sort of 10 years, let's say. I mean, the, the parallel for Arsenal is is Liverpool, actually. And Liverpool used to look up to Arsenal when um, FSG came in. Arsenal were, were one of the models they were looking at. But, you know, it's flipped and Arsenal really need to, to look at them because FSG overall are, are not much different to the Glazers or, or the Cronkies because they are... Um, very sober businessmen who who really are in it to to do well and and um, turn over the bottom line. But they are sports guys. They are are, are they are real. And I know Cronky's a sports owner, but he doesn't seem to have the feel for it that that John Henry and FSG have got. They, they seem to understand the the sporting equation that you do have to put in. You do have to invest. You do have to make that kind of bet or gamble on talent and on investment and on the people that you hire and back in order to try and get the return. You know, and we've talked about Liverpool pumping into the wage bill, pumping into the structure. At some point, Arsenal are going to need to try and do that in a in a rational way, not in a Manchester United way, in a rational way. But until they do that, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to to catch up with with anyone, I guess the hope for them is the academy. And I, I wonder if that's why one of the reasons Freddie Lundberg's been promoted from um, working with the younger players, um, because it's clear that under the, the, this model that they're at, they, they will need to um, get some of their talent through into the first team and, and, and make use of it because that refreshing, that refreshment of talent isn't really going to come from, from, Bigger signings. No, no, actually, is actually, it going to work, Duncan? Is it going to work? That's the question. Well, I, I was just going to say, I spoke to someone at Arsenal yesterday and asked them about Bloomberg's promotion to assistant manager and what Johnny said there was exactly the explanation I was given. It's because Bloomberg had worked with the academy. Um, you rotate him into the first team and to aid the integration of those players into the first team because he knows them well and they know him well and he can uh, he can make a more successful transition for them. You move Steve Ball back and the suggestion was that they would carry on doing that. We'll see if that happens down the line, but the idea would be Steve Ball would work with the academy players for a couple of years. Um, Bloomberg was the first team transitioning those academy players into the first team and then they'd switch around again down the line which is a model I've not heard of before and quite innovative and it will be interesting to see if it works but in terms of whether the overall project will work 
I think they're at a disadvantage, you know, for the for the reasons we've we've explained, and that they they don't have their financial resource that they that they have, which is less than Manchester United's for sure, allocated to the right areas of the first team squad. So, it, as Johnny says, that academy side becomes important to them, and um, you know, Tottenham are in a much much better shape, obviously, in terms of their first team. Looks like they're going to retain the coach. Um, who has been very successful in giving them Champions League football every year and uh, and are now in a better financial position because they have their training ground done and they have the have the stadium done and they can they can maximize the revenue from that stadium going forward and and with Pochettino pressuring Daniel Levy um, to give him more in the transfer market I think there's going to be a reasonable amount of investment this summer for the first time for for quite a long time so there if you if you analyse it, you've got to say Manchester City, Liverpool competing for the title again next season. Um, Tottenham probably third, and then the other three uh, trying to get that last Champions League place. Bold predictions indeed from Dr. Duncan Kansas, as we'd expect on the Transfer Window podcast, because we give you bold opinions and we also like to get you informed as well which is why and bold opinions bold opinions especially in this bold episode. opinions yes yes that has been a, that has been something which has been noted Duncan we have to say amongst our listeners I'm going to move us on to the uh, infamous quickfire round of a Friday podcast and uh, this week we're going to um, focus upon some fashion icons because uh, it has come to our attention that Pep Guardiola's hooded cardigan raised £6,000 indeed um, for Manchester City's charity foundation. And the question I'm going to put to both Duncan and Johnny is, which fashion icon would you pay the most money for? I'm going to put it to Johnny first because Johnny is obviously our guest and say to him, um, and I'm sure you know Johnny, We've had a, a long conversation, an interview off the record with Pep's tartan bonnet, uh, <laughs> uh, which he wore on the victory parade around Manchester. And um, if indeed his hooded cardigan is worth six grand, what would you pay for Pep's tartan bonnet? <laughs> I like a bonnet. Um, but, you know... I'm, well, you, you have no hair. So yeah. obviously a man with no hair loves a bonnet, um, as, as Duncan does. As as has been the way since the the, the days of um, uh, the, the the Sunday Post comic strip, and, indeed, and, uh, and, and the Bruins. Yes, there's nothing like a bonnet. Um, personally, I wouldn't pay. You know, my bonnet collection is is pretty replete, so I'm not going to pay for Guardiola's <laughs> <laughs> headgear. But in terms of um, in terms of um, fashion items, I mean, it has to be Alex Ferguson's beautiful, magnificent. Um, two-tone Adidas jacket. Oh, I love it. I love it. In the rain, oh. in Gothenburg, when Great. the mighty Real Madrid were put to the sword by by the famous Aberdeen in 1983. A, a, a magnificent item. And it's actually, I'm in my office at the moment at home and I have got um, a head... You have it. You have well, that. You have no. a <laughs> I've got a picture of it on my wall that I'm actually looking at oh, it. It's I've, not uh, the same as having the actual tracks. Well... 
I would I would I would pay a lot more than six thousand pounds for it, but I'm sure it's already oh, in lovely stuff in some oil Aberdeen oil magnets personal collection somewhere. But I'm, I'm actually looking at Fergie wearing that beautiful jacket the following day when he paraded the Cup Winners Cup um, down a packed Union Street um, from an open top bus. Um, it's uh, it's a kind of off red with an off blue, the kind of colours that you only really got in the uh, in the eighties. Um, and uh, my goodness, how good would I look uh, striding down the streets of Leicester wearing that? That's what I'm thinking. Duncan, I'm I'm really sorry to even to have to ask you to top that, um, because my um, original suggestion was to be Maurizio Sarri's cigarette, but. Um, from last season where he, he just basically drew on it every single game and uh, managed to top himself up with um, a Europa League win and a third place in the, in the, in the Premier League. But I will give you free licence on the basis that uh, Johnny has indeed usurped everything that we could have imagined and just tell us what, you, what, what, would, you, what would you pay for. I would I would pay not to have to wear Pep Guardiola's cardigan. As, <laughs> as, as, as. Do you think? Do you think it's probably Pep Guardiola's cardigan costs more than six grand that was paid for it by charity? Well, I think we did in a, a previous episode some research on that and discovered that it cost over a thousand pounds and was bought by his oh, wife for him, as, as I believe much of his other um, clubber is. Um, but. Yes, I'd pay not to have to wear that one. Um, I think if I had to have one item that I'd pay for, I would pay for the iconic uh, Dundee United uh, 1983 um, strip worn by Ralph Milne when he scored one of the greatest goals of all time to send um, the best team in Scotland on its way to the Premier League title. I'd pay significant money for that number eight shirt. We do not apologise in any way for this absolutely unassociated loving with the new firm of Aberdeen <laughs> and people. Um, and, and if you don't know what the guys are talking about, please just get on your server, Google, whatever you want to do, type it in and you will see why that means so much to Duncan Castles and Johnny Northcroft. <laughs> Tell us your Pierre Van Hoydonk story because that, that oh, is the best fashion Oh, oh, you, oh you're, you're twisting my arm. You're twisting my arm. All right, okay. So um, as a young reporter on Evening Times, um, I wrote a very, very um, coruscating column on the great Pierre Van Hoydonk who had um, rejected a... Um, contract off from, from Celtic uh, in terms of an improvement on his current deal by saying that uh, even the homeless would be ashamed uh, of what they'd offered me. And, um, and I said in my column at the time, and again, this is many months ago, um, that he was a disgrace to the um, tradition of Celtic Football Club, which was founded on charity by Brother Walford, and that he should uh, tone down and pipe down his um, particular agenda against the club. Uh, where do I find myself? In the um, Celtic concourse, uh, with Van Hoydonk wearing a full length, um, I think it was Gianni Versace, um, leather coat 
in white people in white <laughs> at which point Van Hoydonk shouts to me across the concourse McGarry you can't afford this jacket at which point I reply if I could I wouldn't even wear it anyway and on that poignant note we shall bring this transfer window podcast to a close we thank you for listening and uh, we know that you love to give something back and if you can please go into iTunes and give us a five star review uh, which helps us reach out to all the other people who are not currently receiving the benefit of our wisdom and indeed our community other than that join the debate with Duncan Castles at Duncan Castles with Jonathan Northcroft at J Northcroft with me at Garbo SJ and um, we can continue to um, have this debate but we will also be back on Monday with all your podcasting needs we shall see you through the transfer window have a good weekend people thanks for listening we'll see you on Monday Monday